Welcome to the EPP group podcast on hate speech online against women. Together with our guests, we discuss the causes and effects of hate speech online against women and what actions should be taken to combat it. Keep listening and please follow the EPP group on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Good afternoon, everybody. You're all very welcome to this virtual event on hate speech online against women. Let's talk about it. Let's tackle it. I'm Karen Coleman, a journalist and a broadcaster from Ireland, and I'm the editor of Europarl Radio, which reports on news from the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. And I'm pleased to be moderating this debate today on this very important topic. As you well know, of course, cyber violence and hate speech online against women can have a significant impact on its victims. Hate speech has been steadily increasing as more and more of us spend time on the internet. A lot more research needs to be done on this topic, but according to a study on this for the European Parliament's FEM Committee, in Europe, one in 10 women have experienced some kind of cyber violence since the age of 15. And online platforms where these forms of abuse take place include social media outlets, search engines, messaging services, blogs, dating websites, common sections of media, chat room, forums, and many, many others. So combating hate speech online is a serious challenge, but one that surely must be challenged. And how to do that is just one of the questions I'll be asking our panelists today. Now, in a moment, I'm going to introduce our speakers for today's debate. Before that, I'll just briefly explain what we're going to be doing. Initially, I'm going to be asking our panelists for their views on what online speech violence against women is. What causes it? What effect is it having on all of us? And then I'll follow up with the very important responses to what can be done to tackle it. What actions can we take? What rules and laws are needed to try and get rid of it? We'll spend about half of the time on part one of the debate and the rest will be spent on the second part. So we're packing a lot in, in 45 minutes. It's going to be a busy session. Let's get going. It's my pleasure now to introduce our panelists for today's webinar. Roberta Metzola is a member of the European Parliament from Malta on the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs. Roberta is also the first Vice President of the European Parliament and she's with the EPP Group. Sirpa Pietikainen is also a member of the European Parliament from Finland. She is a member of the Parliament's Committee on Women's Rights and Gender Equality and also is with the EPP Group. Councillor Yemi Adenuga is a Fine Gael councillor representing Navan Municipal District in Ireland. She is the founder of Shiro's Global. Asha Allen is a policy and campaigns officer at the European Women's Lobby and the coordinator of their advocacy on online violence and the hashtag HerNet, Her Rights campaign. Prevent, protect, promote, project. Professor Sara DeVito is a professor of international law at the University of Venice and an expert on legal frameworks related to violence against women. And finally, Marisa Jimenez is the director of public policy and the deputy head of EU affairs at Facebook. You're all very welcome. It's great to have such a diverse and experienced panel. So let's get started with the first part of our debate, the online space. Amplifying us or silencing us, the problem of hate speech online against women. 
What is it? What causes it? What effect does it have on us? Maybe Roberto Metzolo, if I can start off with you, because you actually have been subject to online hate speech. Can you tell us a little bit more, I suppose, first of all, of your own experiences and what impact it had on you and it is having on you, and maybe as well about the legislative initiative report on gender-based cyber violence? Thank you uh, for having me here. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be participating in such an excellent uh, and important event. Tomorrow, uh, when I was looking at the calendar, is the fifth anniversary of Joe Cox's murder and uh, 44 months since Daphne Caruana Galizia in my own country, Malta, was assassinated. Uh, and that is the context within which gives me the, let's say, the, the drive to work every day in order to make sure that that never happens again. From when I entered politics to today, uh, the impact of social media, uh, originally, of course, and, and overwhelmingly, is a force for good, and it should not be abused of. Uh, and I spend my days trying to balance that uh, understanding with how we are going to uh, weed out the torrent of abuse that um, people who stand up for something face every day. So my uh, personal experience is not about me, but I spend my, my career trying to make sure that um, uh, young candidates, particularly political candidates, young activists, uh, particularly female ones, do not face the same uh, abuse uh, that that we do. Uh, if I can manage to do that, then we would have, I think, made quite an advance. And this is, of course, both from a social aspect and how you tackle this abuse, but from a legislative aspect, which is what uh, you mentioned earlier. In this, um, in this parliament, uh, my group is at the forefront of making sure that we combat gender-based violence, that we adopt legislation that would make it, that would identify the illegalities of such violence, uh, and also to understand that this is a new type of violence that many member states have not yet even started to legislate against. So this is uh, what uh, we are doing. Uh, and, uh, and finally, I end with another uh, a statistic there. We have a study that says that between 63% and 83% of women have faced harassment uh, online uh, or abuse. And that actually had the effect of self-censorship, that people stay away from saying what they really mean because they're afraid of a ultimately quite a small but loud echo chamber that affects the way not only you talk, but also the way you think. Thanks very much, Roberto. And we maybe uh, get into that a little bit more about how best to handle it and is actually removing yourself from the internet and these online sites the right way to do it. That'll kind of come in for part two. Thank you very much for those opening remarks. And we may go back to you for some more information about, you know, the kind of rules and laws that should be brought in as well. If I can turn to you, Yemi Adenuga, now you've done some great work with your Shiro's uh, Global Social Enterprise. That's about building the confidence of young girls and raising boys to be good men. You've also personally experienced hate speech online. Can you share a little bit some more of the experiences you've, you've experienced on being the recipient of hate speech online and what you think you're from that experience, what should be done? Thank you very much, Karen. And um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here today. Uh, to share with these incredible women and also to work towards eradicating this huge problem that is that seems to want to envelop us all. Um, yes, you're right. 
my social enterprise, Shiro's Global, has been working on focusing to build the confidence of young girls and to raise our boys to be good men. The, the platform through which we raise the boys to be good men is a project called the Shiro's Boys to Men project. And I'm proudly wearing the T-shirt today. And um, what we do basically is ask men to stand up and take responsibility. Now, from my experience, most of the people that have trolled me online since I became a politician in 2019 have been majorly men. I'm not saying that women don't troll me, but majority of them are men. Now, I haven't done a research here, but I'm sharing my experience. And the fact of the matter is, I ask myself the question all the time, who raises this man? So we need to do a better job of raising our boys to be good men who respect women, know how to you know, understand when a woman, for example, is saying no, and they know that no means no. Now, one of the things I realize is that the hate speech problem is a pandemic in itself. And just as the COVID-19 is a huge pandemic, we need to pay as much an attention to hate speech online as we have done to the pandemic. Imagine how the entire world rallied round, how Europe rallied round and started to find solutions to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. The same way, when trolls got, you know, they realized that I wasn't paying attention to them online and they wanted another avenue, they started to slide into my emails and send me threatening emails and send me blackmail emails. Now, that's not acceptable and that shouldn't be allowed. My One of my goals as well is to encourage more young girls to think about running for politics. But how can we encourage young girls to run for politics when they're afraid that they might be controlled online, either for their weight or their look or their color or their nationality, whatever the challenges are? These are the difficulties that women face. So um, I know down the line we will talk about some of the solutions, but um, I, I feel that we have a task here as those who are in the forefront to not just see this as a problem, but to also see it as an opportunity to begin to address um, a global pandemic that is, is threatening to envelope us all. Okay, brilliant, Yemi. Just very, very quickly, if you wouldn't mind, how do you know the majority of those who were trolling you online were men? Because some of the names that were made up, I know that sometimes people use parody accounts and then use made up accounts. But a majority of those accounts were male names. A majority of the people who are real people, who you can see their profile, were male names. So I, I, I'm not sure if there's been a research about, you know, what gender trolls majorly. But this is my experience. And I find that a lot of the people who come at me with racist comments even, I mean, as a, as a black woman who is in politics, I've got four strikes against me. First, I'm a woman. Then I'm a black woman. I'm a black woman with an accent. I mean, you know, these are some of the excuses that these people use to come at me. So a majority of them by their names and some of the by their pictures are men. OK, brilliant. Thank you, Yemi, because I think this is the issue. There, there's so much research that still needs to be done in this. So it'd be very interesting to hear from our panellists, too, what other background information they have. Um, and we will be going back to what can be done, as you say, an issue that has to be addressed. Asha Allen, if I can turn to you. The European Women's Lobby has done a lot in this field with the her 
net, her rights campaign and digital safety trainings of politically engaged women. Can you tell me a little bit more about the outcomes now and what you've learned from the work that you've been doing on this? Yes, of course. And uh, thank you to the organisers for the invitation. And it's wonderful to be on this panel with all of these incredible women um, and the incredible work that they do. Um, for those of us who don't know us, uh, the European Women's Lobby, we're the largest umbrella organisation of women's civil society in Europe with over 2000 member organisations. And as you mentioned, we've been working on this um, very concretely for the last few years. And our engagement with politically engaged women and what we mean by this is not only women who were running for elections, um, it was the women who were supporting those women who are running for elections, because I'm sure as some of the um, participants on this panel know, it wouldn't just be them who are exposed to the hate speech that they received. It's their teams, too, who are exposed to this at the same time. But also, again, picking up on the young women and, and women in general who want to be more politically engaged. And throughout our campaign that was aligned to the European election campaign of 2019, we were able to train over 500 politically engaged women, and that includes some of the members of the, this house um, of the European Parliament, their assistants and others who were um, engaged. And what was very, very clear for us, which was a very sad reality, was the fact that so many felt that they needed this digital safety training in the first place. Um, uh, I think if we refer to the data from the European Institute of Gender Equality, that shows that 51% of young women in Europe are actually hesitant to engage in debate online because they are already aware of the harassment and the sexist hate speech that they're going to face. And so this is not only an issue um, in regards to specifically looking at um, sexist hate speech. For the European Women's Lobby, it's very clear that this is part of the continuum of violence against women and girls, and that the online and the offline space, that blurring is not really a blurring. It's the use of digital tools to continue the perpetuation of violence against women and girls. And I would just really want to go back to the point um, that was made previously um, by the councillor in kind of knowing who are the perpetrators are. We have data that shows that violence against women is predominantly um, perpetrated by men. We refer to it as male violence against women, and we look at that in the context of patriarchy and misogyny and actions against women because they are women. So for us, it's, it's very clear, and we engaged in a very detailed advocacy strategy to bring forward action, not only at the EU level, um, but at member state level as well. And that was engaging in a legal analysis, um, looking at effective implementation of um, existing frameworks, but also ensuring that the European Parliament, and I'm very happy to be on the panel today with some of the champions that we've been able to work with already, to really bring forward those initiatives and say, actually, there's something that concretely needs to be done here. Um, there is something that can be done. Um, and preventing online violence and sexist hate speech does not come at the expense of freedom of expression. I really want to make that clear. This is not a binary discussion between one or the other. Protecting women's rights to be able to freely express themselves online means prevent allowing them to engage without experiencing sexist hate speech and online violence. It's not a choice between the two. Um, and based on European values and our existing legal frameworks, both can be protected and we can ensure that violence and sexist hate speech is prevented and eradicated. Great. Okay, Asha, thank you very much. And you're bringing out more information there about some of the background research that you're doing there and who's perpetrating that as well. We might tease that out if we have time a little bit later. But let's turn to you, Sirpa Pietikainen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name uh, correctly. 
what effect is this kind of hate speech online having on women in general, do you think? But we'll say particularly women in high profile positions such as yours in politics or other such um, positions. I would turn actually uh, um, around your question and start what is the impact on the people that are not yet in the high power, because probably I do have my rhino skin already uh, to think it is not uh, my problem, it is their problem, and it is uh, not my fault if someone vomits on my lap, even though it doesn't feel nice, you can sort of uh, distance, uh, distance it from yourself. But it shouldn't be so. And the reason I'm so angry and active in this campaigning is that we shouldn't have this kind of a policy, that only those ones, because, you know, I'm fighting with the human rights in various fields for uh, sexual minorities, for colored people, for disabled people. Why should I take it as a woman that think it's okay? Because, you know, you just have to tolerate, and when I can tolerate it, it's okay. No, it is not okay when it is gendered. And this is sort of the basic fact that I think that we should raise. And there are four types of it. And that sort of relates to the original question and women in the leadership. First, and this is growing, it is intentional quieting of women coming from far right, from populistic, semi-fascistic movements and with people not so stable minds or whatever. But it is not by accident that they fall whore you and they say that, you know, I hope some Talibans will uh, rape you to death in black uh, uh, dark alleys and uh, if you uh, you are not safe you, if you come to my village and you and your, uh, if you and, and so on, opinions and I'll show you and you can imagine the whole variety. Then it is that kind of an hate speech uh, <clears throat> that is targeted specially for uh, uh, for women in all ages and all looks uh, and in all political levels. You're always too fat or too skinned. You're too beautiful and dumb or too ugly or too sort of a flowery dressed or too dark, uh, dark dressed or too somber or too much smiling. So you feminize all what you are in negative terms and any difference out of whatever playboy picture they have on their mind, how women should be represented, is wrong. And that, of course, is undermining. And that is the classical sort of making women as, as objectives. And that can be very somber, especially for young women that have a, a bit of a special style or preferences, be whatever preferences. And it starts already in school when they might say something about social or environmental politics and then the others are saying, boo, you look at yourself. And sort of in, it shrinks the women's space. It intimidates uh, those women that are so tough in the soul and it distorts the opinion variety in the society and politics. And that's why it is so severe. And then, and uh, I know that we are going to talk about it later on, <coughs> and uh, Roberta was already mentioning about it, about it by talk, uh, talking about echo chamber, and this is the Marissa, because I know technically it's much harder to take it away, and I call it targeting and echoing. It might be sort of a sound uh, 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 critiques that you might say to female or male, 
like, you know, I don't like your uh, refugee okay. policy and you too soft. But then again, it is 10 or 100 fold compared to what the male colleagues get it. Okay, Sirpa, uh, brilliant. I'm going to have to move on because um, we have to get to our other three speakers before we get to what needs to be done. I want to turn to you, Marisa Jimenez. A substantial amount of online abuse against women takes place on on Facebook. Um, We'll get to what Facebook should be doing further down. But what should women do when they come across this kind of abuse leveled against them on a platform like Facebook? What's your advice to them? Thanks so much. And this is it, this is a, a, a great and difficult question. The first thing that I would want to say from what has been said so far is that um, when it comes to women violence and, and gender-based violence, this is not only about dealing with the hate speech or the offensive content itself. It is something more. And I think that everyone has been mentioning it already, which is the fact that these attacks can and are preventing women from participating in healthy debates online. They're being discriminated against and the barriers of the offline world are being expanded and increased in the online world. And this is why we need to tackle this. And this is why Facebook is working um, to to tackle the issue. Yes, there is abuse online. uh, And yes, there is uh, uh, violence uh, against women. And we have to address it with different tools uh, and the, the job is never done. The first thing is to empower empower women and tell them. The first thing that I would, you know, you say, what should we tell women? What should Facebook, what does Facebook say? We are here to make sure that women are empowered online and can use the, uh, the great benefits of social media. We have policies in place that we have to develop and make better. We have tools uh, for them to manage uh, the comments, manage, uh, and, and we have also technology that we use to prevent and detect and also prevent, and this is very new, detect and prevent uh, abuse and but harassment. So ju- just to, because we're stuck for time, Marisa, we know that you have sure. those policies, but some people will say they're still not working. Facebook could do a lot more. Should a woman who is subjected to this, should she take herself uh, offline or are there things and what are those things that she can do online on a platform like Facebook to prevent this kind of abuse against her? So we have tools that would allow to determine who can comment, how they can comment and, and, and where people can comment. This is the first thing you can. You have tools to make sure that the when you have requests for direct messaging on, on Instagram, for example, and they and we detect that there is some some there could be some offensive language that these go to a specific folder that they don't have to deal with it immediately or they don't have to deal with it at all. There are tools for friends, for your friends to help you also deal with these uh, with characters that are offensive. We're making sure that people that are being that violent our policies against uh, women, that they cannot easily come back again or not at all and try to harass you again by creating a new account. For those groups who violate the policies, uh, uh, these types of policies, we'll make sure that these are not recommended, that they go down, that they will not promote this type of behavior. And we're giving the people that deal, the administrators of groups where they have been some uh, uh, violations to make sure that they are also involved 
in moderating the content that appears. So okay. it's really important to give those content moderation tools and make them available. Okay, and maybe our, our guests, our other panelists may have views on that. We'll come back to you, Marisa, to probe this further into what Facebook can do. But finally, I want to go to Professor DeVito. Thank you very much for your patience. And um, maybe you may want to comment on what has been said so far, Sarah, but also, I suppose, in taking it into a legal forum. How important is it, do you think, to have definitions of abuse when dealing with issues like hate speech online against women? Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much, Karen. It is a great pleasure and honor to be here today. And uh, thank you for the invitation. This very important question. Well, from a legal perspective, um, having definitions is extremely useful um, to describe the phenomenon and to better address it in terms of preventive, protective and repressive measures. Well, we can argue that maybe definitions are limited because they, you know, represent uh, um, or they necessarily try to capture uh, behavior that is very complex and coming manifest in different forms, as actually uh, the previous panelists have said, and it can also evolve over time given the nature of Internet and the flexibility of it. However, I'm, I'm very convinced, and maybe we can turn to that later on uh, also, uh, that definitions are fundamental, also from a legal point of view, for two main reasons. For the victim survivors, um, because they can report abuses that have a name, hate speech online, and so they do not refer to general behaviors uh, like breach of privacy or others. And for the authorities, because they can actually recognize the illicit behavior and provide specific and gender-sensitive responses for um, victims, survivors of violence. Um, a definition can also be useful to stress two elements and that were raised also by the previous uh, panelists. One is intersectionality, meaning the intersection of different forms of discrimination, and which is extremely relevant for all forms of gender-based violence against women and obviously for hate speech online, and also its cross-border nature. Uh, which should be taken into consideration and which paves the way for uh, the um, consideration of a need for a common and uh, harmonized definition of hate speech online. Thank you. Okay, Sarah, thank you very much for that. We'll go back to you to find out more about your views on what actually can be done. Let's just move straight on to topic two because you're all brilliant and it's great to get your views. And I want to make sure we all give time now to the next part of the debate. We've sort of been talking about the initial, what is it, what have people's experiences been? But particularly what's important now is what can be done? What rules can be brought in to tackle this? Let's go back to you, Roberta uh, Metzola, from a political perspective. What can be done? What can parliamentarians like yourself, the European Parliament and then the European Commission do to try and reduce Juice, if not eradicate this kind of online speech hate against women? The first thing I would do is to make sure that we don't only discuss this issue on the 8th of March of every year. Uh, I find myself being invited annually to events where we say, what can we do? And then we meet again a year later. Uh, and in this case, perhaps uh, jumping on what has already been said, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily... Um, gender the role models, if, if, if I can put it like that, because I would make sure that men are involved in this discussion, in calling the toxic uh, participants in our society out, but in women also being able to pull, you know, each other up in order for us to be able to 
to to succeed in whatever we want to succeed and i think this is something that sometimes we forget we have we talk about um, uh, um harassment and, and online abuse of women only with women on the panel and and i you know we we need to to stop that and actually uh, push for for a more diverse and and and, and broad broad um, debate. So in terms of legislation uh, and, and concretely, uh, Sirpa mentioned some of the things that, that are happening in the, in the Women Affairs Committee, but there is also a lot that is happening in the Internal Market Committee and also in the Legal and Civil Liberties Committee where I sit, which is, for example, the, the Digital Services Act. How are we going to make sure that as politicians, we keep up with technology. We've seen it before. We were too late. Marisa we and I have discussed this for, for, for many years now, uh, where sometimes we spend three years uh, legislating on a law, taking so long to, to, to agree, patting ourselves on the back that we've managed, only to realize that technology is light years ahead of us uh, in terms of the legislative framework we've just approved. So I think, uh, and this is where this is not just the European Union, but also where we can join with other parts in the world that are moving quite steadily in order to, to, to address the gaps, in order to make sure that the stakeholders, whether they are um, uh, social media companies, whether they are technology-driven um, uh, companies, but also whether they are companies that have um, uh, corporate and social uh, incentives uh, imposed upon them in order to make sure that the abuse is curbed. We can't say it will end, but it can be addressed. So there are discussions going on. Can you have a fake profile? Uh, the councillor uh, mentioned it before, you know, some people hide behind um, uh, profiles that they can set up in order to, to send as, as much abuse as they can. Some people don't even bother to do that uh, and they send it in their own name and that's a completely different uh, way to address it because and I've said this before, I sometimes uh, contact those, those individuals if I can find those, their, their profile and, I, and I, I send them a message, I say can I, can I sort of know what your, 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 your issue is and of course you can you know, there's a freedom of speech. But if you are telling this to my daughter, they were talking about bringing up boys. I'm the mother of four boys. If you are talking about any of my of my children, how am I going to tell them to push back and not think that this is the only world that exists, but that there is a, 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 an overarching structure of support? And that's what we in the European Parliament need to make sure with our laws that there is that structure of support that seeks to get to plug the gaps uh, of of uh, hiding behind anonymity, uh, no too late, uh, too delayed taking down of inflammatory comments, depending on the language they're written. Um, uh, sometimes uh, it's not only, you know, keywords, but even individually targeted. New models of communication, what my children are using now on social media, I don't have. I want to be able to understand them. And then one last point is how are we going to um, create more safeguards uh, and uh, I think one of the things, for example, that's being discussed in my country, and I know in Ireland and in the UK, this has already quite advanced, that just like we have a data protection officer, uh, individual in our companies, why, do not, why don't we have safeguarding commissioners within our companies? If you work with a certain vulnerable part of society, children, children, vulnerable, right? Uh, and easily amenable, easily approachable. Why aren't, are we not making sure that we have uh, those people who would safeguard um, uh, the, the acts by training our counselors, our teachers, okay. our, our leaders? So this is, these are all hard and soft measures that I think we need to approach.
Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Roberta. Let's just go straight to you, Sirpa. What can be done to combat this? I think that we have a three effective measures. And Roberta uh, mentioned the <clears throat> responsibility of platforms already. I think that we simply should have the publisher responsibility on platforms on, on this. It is pretty clear. Uh, all journalists, Karen, you know that uh, if I or someone would on, on your newspaper write something about them bashing, there's the, not only responsibility on that one who writes the text, but you uh, as for the publisher to what do you publish. And uh, that goes, I guess, the discussion with Marissa. And I know it is a bit difficult because then this sort of echoing or multiplier effect. So basically it's difficult to identify because I'm just uh, best because uh, I, I defend human rights uh, to, to say that this is gendered as it is or uh, when it is uh, in the, se in the uh, sexual, uh, in the gendered, uh, because it is just 100-fold that my male colleague is, is getting. So I understand we need to develop the new tools on there. But this is the publisher responsibility on platforms. And second, we need to uh, uh, write the gendered hate speech with the zero tolerance as hate crimes and the public EU crimes so that we have it there on the public prosecutor's uh, rights to, to intervene if, uh, if needed. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for that, Sirpa. Then let's go straight to you, uh, Marisa, from Facebook. Uh, publisher responsibility on platforms. Also, Roberta talked about anonymity as well, which comes up over and over again. What can Facebook do? Can you do these things? So, um Facebook is not a publisher, so we can have a, a, a publisher's responsibility. We, it's, it's, a, it's a different service. However, that does not mean that does not mean that Facebook should not have responsibility and exercise its responsibility. So in that sense, I would half agree with the uh, MEP saying that indeed, we need not only to have it, but to exercise it better. And to exercise it better, there's things that can happen at legislative uh, and uh, at the legislative front, as the MEP Mesola has mentioned. Indeed, there's combination of soft and and hard law, but soft and hard law cannot work if you don't have a, a proper framework around it, where all all stakeholders participate and work together. The collaboration that has been uh, going on uh, through Facebook and other social media and the uh, NGO community is essential and needs to be reinforced. So I think that that's very important. The, the DSA is an opportunity as well that we should not underestimate. The DSA, however, so far it, for many is limited only to illegal content. There are many issues here that have to do, unfortunately, with content that is not illegal, but is deeply offensive that we also need to tackle. And we need to have a very serious conversation of what type of laws we want. And we do think that there is an opportunity to tackle this type of, of it's difficult, but just because it's difficult, we shouldn't be tackled at legislative level as well. And we are committed to working um, with the rest of stakeholders on this. What about the whole issue of anonymity? Um, because, of course, some people require anonymity for safeguarding, such as in political stuff they may be doing or human rights. But a lot of this nasty stuff takes place under, you know, the frame of anonymity. So, 
Yes. So at Facebook, we have a real name policy. So people that come on Facebook uh, need to provide their, their real name and we do not allow fake accounts. So, and, and many of the MEPs here will know that this is one of the, the first actions against uh, against any any abuse is to deal with uh, with uh, fake accounts or fake profiles in in any way from hybrid attacks to what we're discussing today. So that's really really important that we uh, know that there's authenticity online. We are trying, you know, we're we're fighting to get that. So in that sense, it's not about whether there's anonymity or or, or not. Um, for us, it's important that there is. That there's a you know that, that that we know who is who is on uh, who is online, but we wouldn't be advocating for laws that would limit anonymity. Uh, we think that goes too far, irrespective of how uh, Facebook works. Okay, thank you very much, Marisa. Let's go to you, uh, Sarah Devito, because you've conducted extensive research on the EU and international legal frameworks related to hate speech online against women as a form of violence against women. Can you tell us what EU digital le legislation can do to eradicate the problem? Uh, well, thank you very much for the question. And yes, so my work was mainly aimed at um, the potential of criminalization of gender-based online uh, or ICT facility or cyber violence against women, uh, including obviously online uh, aid speech. And I would, uh, would stress the importance of uh, European Union action for the cross-border nature of, uh, of uh, aid speech online and the seriousness of the crime. And uh, I would like to, to um, stress the fact that uh, among the areas of crime that we have under Article 83 of the Treaty of the Functioning European Union, uh, we have computer crimes. And um, that is something that could be uh, used. Um, obviously, there is a possibility and that is something um, that is under discussion, as obviously our uh, panelists can, can say, on uh, adding violence against women as euro crimes, so triggering the pastorella clause under Article 83 of the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union. But there is the uh, computer crimes, and that uh, the definition is not uniform and it is not limited to legal access and interference, but can be appreciated in light of the major international and regional legal instruments in that regard including the Budapest Convention of the Council of Europe and the additional protocol to the Convention on uh, Cybercrime uh, concerning uh, the criminalization of acts of a racist and xenophobic nature. Um, so um, the legal basis is obviously fundamental. I agree with Marisa when she said that a combination of soft law and art law is needed and is required, and this is the, the way that uh, can be actually uh, followed. And I would like also to stress on a different note uh, what uh, Asha was saying before and the need of a human rights based approach uh, to tackling the issue of uh, um, aid speech online. Um, if indeed, uh, freedom of expression cannot be used as a justification to limit uh, women's rights and autonomy, as it is often the case. But freedom of expression is obviously a fundamental right. Uh, so are women's right to be online and express themselves on, on, online. Thank you. And just very quickly, Sarah, it was mentioned earlier about how technology just continues to be ahead potentially of the law. When you talk about computer crime, is it possible to bring in legislation that will be able to deal with technological changes on this years ahead? Mm. 
Yeah, that's a very challenging question for, for lawyers. Uh, I, I would say that we have interpretation as uh, in law and interpretation as European Court of Human Rights has taught us can be also uh, an evolutive interpretation that takes into account the evolution of, of the framework, the society and the different circumstances we have. Obviously, law must be precise because there is the obvious need to grant the clarity of the law that is fundamental and it is also a fundamental uh, principle that should not be underestimated. Uh, but the uh, notion of computer crime is, is uh, quite vague and flexible to be able to capture also the possible evolutions in that, in that field. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Sarah. We'll go to you, Asha, Alan. What do you think can be done to eliminate hate speech online against women? Thank you. So um, I want to support uh, uh, particularly uh, Sarah Davido, who we have been very fortunate to have um, the direct expertise from um, in kind of doing this analysis and, and mapping this out as an organisation. So I won't repeat the elements that she said because uh, we, we kind of jointly share this position. Um, but for the for the European Women's Lobby, I mean, we want to highlight, first of all, that there is this there's no harmonised legal framework at this moment in time. Um, the frameworks that we do have, say, the framework directive on Decision, uh, decision on racism and xenophobia um, and including kind of voluntary frameworks like the Code of Conduct on hate speech, neither reference women or sexist hate speech. Women are missing from both of these provisions and it gives you an indication of uh, how prioritised it is. So in support of what um, Sarah was saying from a very specific legal perspective, we as the European Women's Lobby also support the call to add violence against women as a Euro crime and triggering the passerella clause um, for the EU to adopt um, a harmonised framework, which at the heart of it would be a directive on violence against women, which could align with the um, pro uh, provisions of the Istanbul Convention, um, potentially go further, but also concretely align with initiatives um, being brought forward by the European Commission right now on hate speech and the Digital Services Act. And I also wanted to support the two speakers before me because I think we need to be very, very clear that when it comes to platforms for user-generated content, ensuring uh, intermediary liability provisions are there, ensuring anonymity is there is so crucial because when anonymity is removed, um, just to give a very quick example, the Me Too movement would not have happened if that element wasn't there. And making platforms entirely uh, liable for these kind of actions, again, causes issues that will immediately disproportionately impact on marginalized groups. So there really has to be this nuanced conversation between what can be expressly outlined in legislative frameworks and what needs to be done from it, and do refer to the, the terms being used here, the soft law, the, the, the soft uh, policies that can be done because platforms can be much more accountable, can be much more transparent. We would make sure that they also, we would call to them today to ensure that they do not have automated content moderation because again, that's already negatively impacted on uh, women and and particularly women um, from uh, intersecting discrimination. So what we would say is that this conversation needs to be nuanced. Um, it needs to be based in evidence-based uh, um, proposals and research and understanding what are the implications are for having very huge uh, provisions um, that need to be analyzed and, and discussed in more ways. And so again, our final call really is that it needs to be a multi-stakeholder approach. It needs to be based in a human rights approach and with clarity 
within legal frameworks with reference to the gender dimension. Um, and my last point would be that we really need to ensure that all women and girls can live their lives free from violence, from sexist hate speech, and have the freedom to participate, shape, and define our democratic and online spaces. Okay, Asha, you packed an awful lot in there. That was super. Thank you so much. We'll go finally to you, uh, Yemi Adenuga. Again, from your experience, what do you think are the best steps that can be taken to stamp out this kind of toxic speech against women online? Thank you very much, Karen. Um, so many fantastic uh, submissions there. I'll go back to something that Roberta had said at the very beginning. And I get a bit iffy sometimes when we have conversations over and over again, and you're not seeing the actions as much as you expect to. Um, as an African-Irish leader, when we're talking about legislation to address racism, one of the things we always raise is nothing about us without us. You cannot have a meeting and have a conversation about us without me being in the room if you're talking about black people. So in the same vein, if we are saying that majority of the perpetrators are men, we should have men in the conversation. Nothing about the men without the men in the room. So that's one major thing. Another thing I think we need to do is to perhaps find a way to make the problem a part of the solution. So what's the problem? Social media and the misuse of social media. So why don't we reverse that? We're saying people need to stop speaking a certain way or making certain speeches in a particular way, especially against women. And we're creating a vacuum. So some people would use this as, that as an excuse to say, you're taking away their freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So we need to replace that with what should be said or what could be said. And so we need a campaign, a major campaign that people hear over and over again. Think about when you hear a music that you think is hideous and then you hear it for two weeks nonstop. I guarantee you one day you're standing in your kitchen making lunch. You will repeat the lyrics of those songs. So we need campaigns that can help people begin to hear what they should be saying as against what they're saying. I think political organizations need to empower their women. This is where I really appreciate my party, Finnegal, with, uh, through the Finnegal Women's Network. They're doing an incredible job to empower the Finnegal women in the party to, to have the confidence to stand up, to run um, for political positions, to support in politics. Many more organizations need to do that. And I think we need to know, hold platforms accountable. I hear what is being done in Facebook, but I still feel that there's a lot still to be done. I could ask many questions that will kind of break down all of the things that have been said. But the bottom line is our, our, our platforms, social media platforms need to be accountable just as airlines are accountable for airlifting an illegal passenger. Do you know, there are laws there. So these things have to be practical. We need to raise our next generation to be good. This is what we're doing with the Shiro's Boys to Men project, where we ask our mentors, the men that we raise, we give them a reorientation to be better men, better fathers, better husbands, and in turn ask them to be mentors for the boys in the communities, boys who have no fathers. I mean, in Ireland, research has shown that about 200,000 over boys without far, live without the presence of a father. That surely has a huge impact on, on them and how they respond to things within the community. And let's prepare our women for political leadership. Let's build their confidence. And 
ensure that people okay. understand diversity and inclusion. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. That was brilliant. Your line was just starting to drop there at the very end, which you, again, like all our um, uh, panellists, gave us plenty to think about. We could go on and on and on. I ha have done some research on this. I had so many other questions to ask, but unfortunately, we want to try and keep this to the 45 to 50 minute uh, discussion. So I'm going to leave it there. But can I say a big, big thank you to all of our panellists for joining me today. We've only, we're only at the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest tip of the iceberg here. Um, and as you said very rightly, Roberta, every year, you know, this gets discussed in the likes of International Women's Day or other issues and there are there days of significance talking about women. And the next thing, uh, nothing seems to happen. And you're uh, a year later, you're talking about it again. Let's hope something can be done to tackle this. But thank you so much to all our panelists. I'll give you a virtual uh, round of applause and a big thanks to you, those of you who've been watching us online on Facebook. I hope you found this of you. Use, continue the discussion. You can go to the hashtag her net her rights to find out, find out more again about this and indeed onto the EPP social media sites as well. I'll close out the webinar. It has been a pleasure moderating this debate and I hope to see you again. Goodbye now. Thank you for listening to this EPP group podcast on hate speech online against women. Please subscribe to our channel. We invite you to follow the EPP group on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to learn more about our work. <laughs>